Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmurz Day, September 20th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim tells us what Walt Disney World was like two weeks before its opening in 1971. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks, do you like seeing movies in theaters or do you like eating candy in the dark while no one can interrupt you? It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going okay. Speaking of theaters, though, Len, 40 years ago when I was in college, I ran a cinema in Acton, Massachusetts, the Acton Twin. Anyway, we had a cat that lived up in the projection booth that loved the real butter that we used to put in our popcorn. And in fact, this cat loved butter so much it would periodically sneak out of a projection booth and then skulk around the theaters. We would then try to find somebody who'd just gotten a hot butter put on their popcorn. And mm-hmm. I always knew the cat got out because we'd be in the middle of some romantic comedy like The Goodbye Girl. And I'd suddenly hear this blood curdling scream. scream. <laughs> you know, coming out of an auditorium. Because some poor soul was frightened out of their mind because this cat paw had come out of nowhere <laughs> and, and pulled at their popcorn bucket. So, you know, it's like, yes, yeah, so I know of, of things coming out of the dark, you know, in a, in a theater. Could you imagine what that cat's fur must have looked like after rolling around on the floor of a movie theater? The La Brea tar pits have nothing on the floor, of a, a, especially one of those sloped, raked theaters like we were. The bottom three rows, you know, people would lose shoes. <laughs> well, well, that flip-flop lives here now. There we go. So, All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandicamP.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Not Drowse, CHDD9594, and Jeffrey Mullen. And longtime subscribers, Jeff Miller, Sue1989, and David Brown. Jim, these listeners were in Walt Disney World last week with a wild idea to see what that crazy Maurice has been up to in his workshop in Fantasyland, end quote. And no one has seen them since. True story. Well, if you recall from the movie, there was that automated axe thing. (laughs) Has anyone turned that off? Has anyone checked? I'm now very concerned about the gray stuff. (laughs) What is this, raspberry now? What is this? Oh, it's delicious. Fantastic. All right, well, uh, let's uh, let's move on and do the news then, Jim. Mm -hmm. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. Free worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. On last week's show, we mentioned that Disney hotel occupancy was maybe looking a little bit low, and it might be time to release a discount. Lo and behold, alert listener Eric was the first to email us to say that Disney has announced a new discount. This one is from... December 12th through the 24th of 2021, 25% off at Animal Kingdom Lodge, 20% off at Art of Animation, 20% off at Port Orleans Riverside, which is good news because at least we know it's opening, right? This is true. This is true. Also, other discounts at uh, Cordero Springs, French Quarter, Yacht Club, and Riviera. Book through December 24th. Are you kind of surprised that we're seeing 25% off at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge? Isn't that one of the more beloved properties on property? The big complaint about Animal Kingdom Lodge is that it's remote, right? And not no easy access to a theme park, to a theme park from it. Hmm. And we've talked about this before, right? We did a show uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, there should be walking paths between Animal Kingdom Lodge and the park, right? 
I think that's the uh, the big thing there. People love the animals. People love the restaurants. It's the fact mm-hmm. that it's so far from everything. Okay. Um, also, other news. Club Cool reopened this week. Next week, we're going to hear from Christina, who was actually there to experience it. She said it was uh, the same as you remember it. Also, um, Space 220, the restaurant finally opens on September 20th. And it will be walk-up only. That is no reservations through September 26th. Starting September 27th, you can make reservations. Lunch is fixed price at $55, Jim, for adults. Mm. It's $29 for kids. At dinner, it goes up to $79 for adults. Stays at $29 for kids. And Jim, I note here that it's a fixed price menu because isn't there a, uh, a, a trend towards fixed price menus in Walt Disney World? It seems to be heading that way. And if you think about the places that are offering it, for example, Be Our Guest, mm-hmm. or for that matter, California Grill, you are dealing with guests who are spending the bulk of their meal rubbernecking. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard waitstaff talk about the fact that it's hard to get people to order at Be Our Guest because they're, oh, look at the chandelier. Oh, there goes the beast. Oh, it's snowing over there. And it's like, could you look at the menu for a minute and just... Focus. We've got to turn yeah. this table in 45 minutes. Yeah, that's it exactly. That's a, that's a great point. You mentioned the um, the characters because character meals are traditionally fixed price as well. There we go. Yeah, so, so to your point where it's uh, where the food isn't the primary thing, fixed price seems like it's an option for Disney. I, I note too that fixed price is also a way for Disney to dissuade the people who are coming up for like a, just a drink or a dessert just to see the place. Let's revisit this in six months and see... How we're operating, you know, where the prices are, that sort of thing. If it's right. a hit right out of the box, we'll obviously see those prices slide north. North from $79 per, <laughs> per person, Jim? <laughs> well, you know, it is Epcot, the home of, uh, do you still have money in your wallet? Okay, hang on. Come here. <laughs> Our sensor, sensors have detected currency in your wallet. This one, it's like, you know, we have Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. We have Moana. And here we have Space 220, which doesn't have a tie to an IP. It does have its wonderful gimmick of you're supposedly 220 miles above the surface of the Earth, and you're looking at a spectacular view, but it's not like kind of the parallel project. Have you heard about the Star Wars-themed bar? That is it the Disney Dream, the new ship that's coming next year? Yeah, The Wish. The Wish, where every... 15 minutes, the ship jumps to light speed and you get a different view. So it's it's Skyline Bar, which is on the, the Dream and the Fantasy, That's but it for exactly. Star Wars. Yeah. There we go. All right. So there's just a certain amount of fear given the fact that Mission Space never became the hit that people thought it would. The mm-hmm. fact that we have a now we have a space-themed restaurant to next to the ride that didn't do as well as they expected, and a little trepidation there. So it does fit in the in the theme of uh, a future world. It does. World, it does. world discovery, mm-hmm. uh, whatever the the name of it is. But are you gonna fly to Florida to go to a restaurant where you're pretending you're eating 220 miles above the Earth's surface? Is is that enough? Don't get me wrong. This will be an amazing illusion. For five to ten minutes, you know, but from there, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it seems like the bookend to Coral Reef, but we'll see how the um, how the food is. That's going to be the ultimate thing, right? I mean, you judge a restaurant and that's food. Absolutely, absolutely. But the thing with Coral Reef, real fish, and every so often a mouse swims by. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we're going to see uh, Spaceman Mickey. 
<laughs> You're banging against the windows like, <laughs> I'm running out of air! Air lock! Air lock! What's he saying? What? <laughs> Try the shrimp? What's he? I can't, there we I go. can't read his there mouth. We go. Yeah. Happy normal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. Another news. Disney's announced that Finding Nemo the Musical will return in 2022. We heard from some people who uh, had some insight into what's going oh, on here. And what we, uh, what we heard was that the thing that's coming back will be sort of an enchanted tiki room, country bear, shorter style, simpler show with fewer speaking characters. And then uh, that means less equity performers and then uh, a simpler stage setup. So no flying fish, no flying turtles or anything like that. So that's, it seems like that the, the, the show is getting cut down so they can do more per hour and also with fewer characters, with fewer equity performers, it'll be cheaper to run. That seems like what's happening, right? Yeah. What's the capacity for the, the theater in the wild? It's pretty big. It's, uh, it's, it, it's a thousand. All right. And Country Bear and, and Tiki Room are... A few hundreds. Low hundreds. 1,500 guests for um, Theater in the Wild. That's pretty big. Yeah. This is kind of an interesting way to go. A shorter show. Tiki Room, Country Bear inspired. So what, how long is the show? How long was the last version of the show? Ooh, I want to say 45. It was, a, it was long, right? I love the show. This was Christine uh, Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez's really first work for Disney. In fact, it was so well received. This is what gave them the opportunity to work on Frozen. There's a part of me that really regrets that this is getting changed up at all. But mm. to go the Country Bear Tiki Room route? Well, I mean, it'll be it'll be shorter. You know how like Country Bear Jamboree got a uh, number of songs got cut. Oh no, no, no doubt, no doubt. And the same thing with Enchanted Tiki Room, right? It got cut. For a number of reasons, one to increase turnover, and two because Americans' attention spans just you know aren't that long. I think the current Nemo show is about thirty thirty five minutes right now. That's a long time, it especially is. for for kids to sit, even though it's air conditioning and in the dark. Two thousand twenty two sounds like a very interesting time over at Animal Kingdom. Between now, we've got Kite Tales debuting in a month or so, right? It was part of the yeah. The 50th. I don't I don't know that that's going to be anything. We'll see. Yeah, you know, well, that's what I'm saying. You know, yeah. just a, with Expedition Everest due to go down for a lengthy rehab. Well, that's a, okay. That that's gonna be interesting. So if they, it could be that they need Nemo to be a shorter show mm-hmm. to take up for the reduced capacity that they'll have when. So um, so Expedition Ooh. Everest is going to go down for refurb. We've already lost Primeval World, right? right? Collie River Rapids won't be running in the early part of the year because it's cold and it typically mm-hmm. doesn't run. When it's cold, that's a, that is some capacity that will have been lost. They need to make that up. That's an interesting point. Maybe you know a shorter show offered during that period. I mean, it, it's basically a band aid on a heart condition. Yeah. But it will buy them some breathing space during a, a tough operational time. But yeah, that's what they're dealing with. Okay, yeah, it does make sense to offer a shorter quicker version of that show so we can get more people in there as people are walking around this park what can i do ever yeah. since closed and there's no primeval world yeah on this side of the park what do i what do i do yeah there you go okay my, my guess is that the show is going to go from and this is just speculation i have no idea i'm guessing it's going to go from like 35 to like 20 minutes mm. per show and that would allow them to run two every hour okay all right. Well, just don't cut fish our friends, not food, or, or, or somebody's going to get hurt. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. All right, Jim. Let's do some listener questions. This one's from Derek. 
Mm -hmm. He says, uh, hi guys, my wife and I are DVC and we're able to book reservations for the week of the 50th at Old Key West today. We were amazed there was availability. Should Disney be worried about this? Are people not coming for the 50th? There's definitely availability, hotel availability mm -hmm. for the 50th, which is kind of amazing. I think it's, uh, it's all related to uh, Florida's COVID numbers. What do you think, Jim? Absolutely. Though I, I think we were talking just last week that aren't the numbers in Florida finally trending in the right direction? Yeah, they're finally going down, yeah. Yeah. That might be a little too little too late. No, I agree. I agree. There has just been this steady drumbeat about how bad things are in Florida. And it certainly doesn't help Disney that they've been stressing. This is, you know, a year-long celebration. So it's like, well, I don't need to go in October. I can catch this in December. I can catch this in January. I can catch this in February. Yeah, when it goes on for 18 months, you don't have to be there for uh, right for the opening, right? I agree. I agree. And there's tons of, uh, of interesting hotel availability. So we'll say that. Mm -hmm. There's a question from Spiro, and this one was for, uh, for you. It says, uh, Jim, you mentioned that uh, future consideration for Hong Kong Disneyland, Mystic Point, might be built in the Animal Kingdom. It sounds promising, but is Imagineering considered putting Mystic Point at the Magic Kingdom in Adventureland, where there was talk of Fire Mountain being built? It seems like a better fit. Sparrow's right. If you hammer on Fire Mountain, Disney Magic Kingdom, you can see an amazing piece of concept art that shows the giant volcano that mm -hmm. was supposed to be built behind Pirates of the Caribbean that was supposed to hide the Atlantis, the Lost Expedition attraction. Mystic Manor at Hong Kong Disneyland is a wonderful attraction. And there have been people who have been campaigning to bring that thing stateside. Mystic Manor would be a great fit for Adventureland, but the problem is that what he's describing, the notion of wouldn't it be cool to see Mystic Manor sticking up out of the jungle Sort of like the, the way the volcano was supposed to for Fire Mountain, but right. the mass of a volcano that periodically was supposed to smoke and go off, the Mystic Manor House, as it's been done for Hong Kong Disneyland, is much smaller. It wouldn't make quite the same visual statement. The idea was that, you know, you're staying at the Polynesian and you look out your window and, and there's a volcano across the way. It's like, that's great. That sort of reinforces the adventure I'm having at this resort where Mystic Manor wasn't going to be able to do that. Oh, One of the more intriguing reasons that people have been campaigning, it's like, let's get that attraction stateside, is the amount of plush that that attraction moves. The Albert the Monkey. Oh, yeah. Evidently moves at just as much plush as Figment does for the Journey into Imagination ride for Epcot. So strictly from a monetary point of view, there's a number of parks that would love to have this attraction in Florida. We were just talking about what's going on with Animal Kingdom. And that's a park that genuinely needs rides where... Right. I think about the kingdom. We already have a, a ride of size, the Tron Light Cycle Light Cycle uh, Run. Run, yeah, uh, under construction, supposedly opening. By the way, I just heard this week that Tron Light Cycle may get. I mean, it's it's kind of ratatouille revisited that it may get held till October first, two thousand twenty-two. Are you hearing anything like that? Or? I would not be so. I, I I wouldn't be surprised if either Tron or Guardians gets held until either late twenty twenty-two or early twenty twenty-three. Mm. Like they're not going to open both of them within weeks of each other. So it's just that they don't they don't have anything else in the pipeline, right? No. Not yeah. How? 
So, hey. okay. But no, no, no. Sparrow, you're not wrong. It's a wonderful ride. It would be fun to have it in Adventureland, but Kingdoms doesn't need new rides. On the other right. hand, Disney's Animal Kingdom does need some stuff there. And, and certainly they'd love an attraction where the people want the merch. You know, they want to go home with an Albert. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. You could see how it might fit in Dino Land or in the Animal Kingdom as well, either. You don't, it, putting it in, in Magic Kingdom, you'd have competition with the Haunted Mansion. And oh, yeah. other things. And to your point, yeah. there's a lot of stuff already to do in Magic Kingdom. They should, uh, they should spread the love around. And yeah, Animal Kingdom is the park that has gone the longest then without getting something new, right? It is. But of course, the argument is, it's like, wait a minute, you do recall Pandora, don't you? It's like, oh, yeah, that thing, tiny little thing, barely worth mentioning. Yeah, that was 20, what year, 2016? 2016. All right. So by the time, if they started groundbreaking today at Animal Kingdom, the earliest we would expect to see is like 2024. That'd be eight years. Yeah, interesting. You bring up the the pace of construction. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about that with the feature today. All right, fair enough. Uh, here's an email from Chris, who says, uh, in the discussion of individual attraction selections for Lightning Lane, there seems to be an understanding that it'll be for one or two attractions per park maximum. I'm curious how that'll evolve as new attractions open. I assume, for example, that when it opens, Tron will be an individual attraction selection. Does that mean that either Space Mountain or Mine Train? will get bumped down to regular Genie Plus status, or will the list of individual attraction selection options grow as each new ticket, e-ticket opens? Ah, that's a great question. So Chris, uh, my sense is that Disney wants to keep the number of individual attraction selections to one or two per park so that people don't use individual attraction selections as a substitute for VIP tours, right? So if you could do four attractions per park in individual attraction selections, that would be cheaper than doing a VIP tour for the day. Um, and Disney doesn't want that. So I think the number is going to be limited to one or two. And yeah, to your point, one of them is going to drop down when something new happens. And I think we saw this with the old FastPass tiering system. I was about to say, I mean, you know, if you remember when it was first introduced, what was that, 97? 97, 98, 99, somewhere there. Yeah. Yeah. And how it was rolled out at Disneyland and then made the, the transfer to Walt Disney World. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, would, it always started out as just a handful of attractions. And then given how people reacted to it, then they expanded the program. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see when Lightning Lane actually launches, what the reaction is. And what will Disney do in the wake of that? One of the things that we're, um, we're doing now is in anticipation of uh, individual attraction selections in Genie Plus, is we're counting the number of people in each park at the major attractions, like Seven Doors Mine Train, mm -hmm. that are using the alternate access line on an hourly basis. So for example, Christina was in Magic Kingdom yesterday and mm -hmm. counted for you know, a given number of hours how many people used the alternate access line at Seven Doors Mine Train versus used the standby line. So that when, when these things start, Mm -hmm. in the Magic Kingdom, we'll know the incremental number of people who are using the lane. And that means that they're either buying Genie Plus or individual attraction selections, depending on the ride that you're at. So it's clever. So we'll know. Yeah. I love how you guys think around quarters. That's a, a great way to get at those numbers quick. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's as simple as, you know, putting somebody at the front of a ride and just counting the number of people who get in each line. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously it's going to, it changes day by day, but on average over time, it, we should get a, a, a ratio, right? The number of people using one lane versus another. So we'll see. There you go. 
Here's a, here's a question from Jimmy. He says, happy Shmur's Day. I love listening to the show. Do you have any tips for getting dining reservations for a group of seven adults, two kids, and two infants who are each two years old? Would the two infants require a reservation? Should we split a reservation into two smaller groups to better improve our chances? So, uh, uh, Jimmy, my experience lately with Disney is that, yeah, you would be better off breaking that into a party of six and a party of five than a party of 11. For some reason, Disney's reservation system lately does not like giving out tables for big groups. And frankly, what I would do is, uh, you know, if you've got seven, two, and two, mm. I would probably do, I mean, maybe do three groups, like a group of four adults then two adults and two kids, and then the rest of the adults and the rest of the infants. And also, I would insist that the infants pick up the tab. <laughs> Give them their own reservation and they get the bell. Let's see what happens. There you go. Yeah. Is this one of those situations when you get to the podium that you turn on the charm and, hey, I know it's two or three reservations, but we really are a group, and could you possibly... Yeah. Does that work? It depends. So I've, I've done it a couple times recently. I did it once at Ohana, and it worked. Which was kind of amazing because Ohana is always busy. Um, but oh, we had a we had a large group, and we ended up we ended up actually all at the same table, even though they originally couldn't make the reservation for one table. But we explained what was going on, and they just you know they got us at one big table. And then at Grand Floridian Cafe, we had to make uh, two separate reservations: one for a group of six, one for a group of five. And they they ended up putting us all you know together at the same really long table. But that took a little bit more work to get done. You weren't back there for the chicken again, were you? I, I, mean, I was, in fact, back there for the chicken. It was oh, Lance, good. <laughs> I understand, but I think you may have a problem. <laughs> it's only a problem if you can't afford it, Jim. <laughs> well, there we go. All right. <laughs> All right. Here's a question from uh, Hunter. I have an annual pass upgrade question regarding what you think is the right time to upgrade for my wife and me. When looking at the trips we've got planned over the next 15 months. We live in Texas, so the IncrediPass is our only option. And we want to know when we should take the plunge and make the upgrade. We've got the following trips on the books for just the two of us. December 2021, they'll need a two-day park hopper. March of 2022, a one-day base ticket going before a Disney fantasy sailing. June of 2022, a four-day park hopper. And then December of 2022, a four-day park hopper as well. All right. So Hunter, I uh, let's assume that Disney's not going to change ticket prices between now and the time of your trips. We should all live so long. If you wanted to buy those tickets right now, you'd pay $1,600 each for those tickets. So the two-day park hoppers are $368. A one-day base ticket is $152 in March. And then your four-day park hoppers in June and December are roughly $538 each. So already you would save money by buying the Incredit Pass. The other thing I would say is that if you're staying on site, like if you're going before a Disney fantasy sailing or if you're staying on site in June or December, the hotel discounts you get would be slightly better than what's available to the general public. It might be like 5 or uh, $10 a night better, but still it counts as something. So I think already, you know, depending on when your trip is in December of 21, if you can extend it so that your December of 2022 trip is also covered under the annual pass, then you're set. So that's what I do. So I'd get it as soon as you can. I mean, definitely in time for your December of 2021 trip. Does the Incredit Pass also get you merch discounts at all? It does. So uh, okay. is it 20% on merch and then 10% on food, I believe. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you're gonna, you have to 
factor that into the equation. I mean, you're, you're going four times in, in calendar 2021, 2022. Yeah, you know. and that's it. Yeah. I mean, even even if they didn't, even if they, for some reason, the December 2022 trip wasn't mm-hmm. included, you'd be right at the break-even point anyway. Yeah. But yeah, okay. if you can get, so uh, Hunter, if you can get both your December trips in the same annual pass, totally makes sense to get it now. Makes sense to me. All right. Last uh, question comes from Andrew, who did the Oogie Boogie Bash at Disneyland and said it was the best after hours event he'd ever done. The interesting thing was he got a survey from Disneyland afterwards. And mm-hmm. there's a, a question that said, what would you be most interested in for future events like this? And there are a number of options, Jim, and I'm going to go through them here. And the responses were, you know, I'd be less likely to attend or I'm, I'm not interested at all in this, or I'm extremely interested in this sort of thing. So uh, for our listeners, if you've ever been to a Halloween or a Christmas party, let's go through these questions and you guys think about whether you'd be more likely or less likely to attend a future event if this thing was added. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, would you be more interested in attending a future event if there were fewer people in the park per night? So that, I think that would mean higher ticket prices too, though, Jim. Yeah, most likely. Shorter waits for treats. Mm, Okay. All right. Fair Mm -hmm. enough. More unique merchandise. Not really why I'm going, but okay. Yeah. Uh, More food and dining locations open. Possibly. Mm -hmm. More activities for younger kids. Well, it is a Halloween event, so. Okay. More trick-or-treat stations. Again, shorter waits for treats, you know. mm. And I love the juxtaposition of these next two questions. More healthy treats or more candy? (laughs) Okay, let's cut to the chase here. More candy, bigger bars. Okay, all right. There's a reason why when you were a kid, it's like, that's the house with the full-size bars. Candy bars, exactly. There we go. Uh, More Halloween-themed food and beverage options. I think that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Scarier activities for adults. What does that sound like to you, Jim? If you actually poke at Hong Kong Disneyland's Halloween event, because they were the newer park, they only opened in September of 2005. They were freer because people really didn't have a notion of what a Disneyland theme park could do to do scarier stuff as part of their Halloween celebration. In fact, one year they actually had a maze, a walkthrough experience that left from Main Street. You know, the effect, oh, we're a charming Main Street. Why don't we go into the scary hotel? It has been something that Disney has talked about for years. In fact, I think in a recent show, didn't we talk about that I have an idea program that Disneyland used to have where they actually caution people, you know, cast members who were submitting ideas like, look, we don't want to do, you know, a Halloween event like not scary. Not, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Disney has always kind of looked over shoulder at the money that, you know, Knott's and Universal makes off of the scarier event. And it's like, should we do that? Should we not? And interesting to see this question, once again, bubble up in an actual survey. It is. There's a few more options uh, coming up, too, that are also uh, mm-hmm. pointing in the direction of trying some new things. A um, mm-hmm. couple of other questions. Improved quality of candy. So fewer Smarties, more chocolate. I think that's what we're... Full-size full bars. Full-size bars. Okay. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Uh, more general Halloween merch for sale. A Nightmare Before Christmas stage show. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I know that I know a lot of our listeners are going to be shocked when I say this, but I just don't get the appeal of that movie. It's just not my thing. No, I, I, I get that. I get that. But since 2001, was that when 
Well, yeah, this year's the 20th anniversary of, of Haunted Mansion Holiday at Disneyland. And, you know, they've made money hand over fist off of that seasonal yep. retheming. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, for uh, for Disneyland, it's uh, it's it's now it's it's part of the tradition, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. OK. More character sighting photo locations. I, I don't know if you saw Oogie Boogie Bash got underway on Thursday, September 9th. And that evening, I was seeing photos of people were thrilled that in the ancient sanctum section of the Avengers campus, they had Agatha Harkness, uh, or a a character lookalike from WandaVision, and people were losing their minds because it was like Disney's uh, entertainment department did an amazing job of finding people who are Catherine Hahn clones and doing up the full witch costume. But they also had Sid from Toy Story. They had... The Cruella from uh, the new Craig Gillespie movie. And if you're going strictly by social media reaction, those were huge. So not really surprised that they're looking to lean a little further into this. And those are relatively inexpensive things to put out. Mm -hmm. And to your point, when it's obscure characters, that's a bonus for a lot of people, right? Yep. Sid being one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, More Halloween-themed rides. So right now, what? We've got Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. We've got Small World for Christmas. Yeah. Do we have anything else for Halloween, though? Well... Uh, Space Mountain. Yeah. We, Ghost we, Galaxy. You know, the Ghost Galaxy. And, and if you go all the way back to when Midway Mania first opened, they were talking about the Christmas version of the attraction, the Halloween version of the attraction. So maybe they're finally thinking of turning the key on this one. Interesting. Um, a pre-party package including a discounted hotel room to get ready for the event. Now, I think that's actually something. Like, that's that's a uh, good idea right there. Because a lot of people don't want to travel in their costumes, especially if you've got small children. I I, the idea I, that I, you want to sit on I-5, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. going, to, it's just, it's a hassle. I think that's a great idea, actually. And certainly, if you think about the challenges that the on-site hotels at the Disneyland Resort faces midweek, you know, the fact that, you know, you're doing... Be doing oogie boogies on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. These are times when it's like, yes, please, you know, come book a hotel room. Exactly. Yeah. It's nothing like a Tuesday night stay at the Disneyland Hotel. Mm. Yep. Uh, more characters roaming around the park. Shorter waits for rides. More photo pass photographers. And the last one, a haunted maze. Mm, yep. Where would a haunted maze go, Jim? Remember how there was supposed to be that battle for Wakanda ride, <laughs> you know, at Avengers Campus? Right. There is a giant chunk of empty space standing roughly between Guardians of the Galaxy, Mission Breakout, which, of course, this time of year is Monsters After Dark, and between Cars Land. So you could throw a maze back there, at you know, in a heartbeat. And from an operational point of view, What's great about that is in order to experience the maze, you have to go deep into the park, which means you walk by all of those stores on the way in yep. and you walk by all of those restaurants on your way out. So it's a win-win. You've got that spot. And I think there's a couple of the spots over by Paradise Pier where if you were creative, you could sort of shoehorn something in there. But yeah, the chunk of property until they get serious about finally going forward with Battle of Wakanda mm-hmm. and everything we're hearing is that's at least a couple of years down the line now. Yeah, You'd have that for at least a couple of Halloweens and that would certainly help drive attendance to Oogie Boogie Bash. It definitely would. And, and mazes are a, a staple of European theme parks, right? They are. They are. That's why, for example, 
Disneyland Paris got the Alice in Wonderland maze. In fact, Shanghai also got its Alice in Wonderland maze, only that one was themed around the Tim Burton film. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right, folks, uh, that's going to do it for the listener questions. Uh, We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us what Walt Disney World was like 50 years ago this week. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very few of us remember what we were doing exactly 50 years ago today, uh, including me. But mm-hmm. you happen to remember what Walt Disney World was like 50 years ago. Yes. In fact, I sent off my quarter to get the preview guide back in 1970, which I was fiendishly watching this thing come together from a distance. But on the ground in September of 1971, uh, things were a little crazy at the Project Florida worksite. Well, let's start with the Contemporary Resort and the Polynesian Village Hotel. Oh, construction is well behind schedule at this point. Okay. Even though there's an on-site factory, this was located over where Port Orleans is today, where they built the much-hyped modular rooms for both the poly and the contemporary. And at this point, they were able to crank out 15 of these suckers a day. That's a lot. Uh, that's a lot. But but here's the problem. Uh, from Disney's point of view, it's not that, okay, you're making 15 of them a day. It's what it's costing us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Speed, quality, cost. You can have any two of the three. There we go. Oh. And, and this was the problem, that Disney had been promised these things at a, a set price going into this project. Right. But what they had not factored into this project at all was the cost of bringing all of these materials to the actual worksite so then the modular rooms could be constructed. We are talking about an Orlando that doesn't have a really for real airport at this point. They have the old McCoy Airfield. MCO, yep. There we go. And anything else has to either come by truck or by train. In fact, you know, the I want to say, for example, the berm, uh, berms of the monorail had to be constructed out in Oregon and then taken by train. They were transporting the last of the monorail berms across country in the, the beams. winter. The the beams. Beams. Those, beams. Are, those are huge beams. Yeah. They're huge beams. Okay. But the other thing, they're transporting them across the United States in the winter of 1970s. At least two of the largest beams, they go off the tracks and disappear into the woods. How do you lose a beam that big? Well, that was the thing. It just, it, it was a very tight turn and it was winter. The tracks were icy and. Oh, and it's swampy just, too. So we could probably, could, oh, and it's heavy and it could sink. Yeah. So this is the thing. Somewhere en route between <laughs> Oregon and Orlando, there were at least two giant monorail beams. Again, and again, this is back when they were made fully of concrete rather than the ones that were made on site for Epcot, where they have a styrofoam core and then are covered with, with concrete. But somewhere out there, if somebody wants the ultimate collectible, they got to walk the rail and eventually find the monorail. <laughs> but anyway, back to the modular hotel rooms. Because all this stuff has to be trucked into site and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. The, each of the rooms are now costing five times 
what Disney had originally been told. And U.S. Steel's like, oh, by the way, I, I know we said we'd have the hotels open by October 1st. We're thinking Christmas, though, if we're being completely honest with you, February 1972 is probably far more realistic. Yeah. And Royal Disney kind of loses his, his he take, takes it takes it the way that you would you would expect him to take it. Yes. Yeah. All right. And so, you know, he has them, you know, the, the, the company's lawyers pull the contracts with U.S. Steel. And it's like, well, look, they've effectively broken their contract. We're paying five times what we were promised for the cost of the room. They're not going to meet their delivery deadline or the opening dates for the hotel. And so let's break ties with these guys. Let's buy them out. And but the only problem is it's going to take 50 million dollars, which, by the way, I already I already did the today's money on this one. That's $337 million in today's money, which is not what Disney had available at the time, but they had to find it. But this happened with all aspects of Florida. What was originally supposed to cost, they budgeted $100 million. They will admit $400 million. I'm told that the the real number is is significantly north of that. But part of it was just the way Disney operated during the period. Like, for example, the Princess Charming Regal Carousel at the Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, uh, you know, was there for October of 71. And back then it was known as Cinderella's Golden Carousel. First of all, this wasn't a custom-built thing. Uh, This was something that Disney went out and acquired. It's an antique. It, that's exactly. It was originally uh, built by the Philadelphia Toboggan Company back in 1917. <laughs> the Philadelphia Toboggan Company. Well, you know, you, you make toboggans. You're looking for something to do during the summer because, you know, otherwise what? We're filling the warehouse with toboggans. So you, you go into the carousel business. And but they they made the Liberty Carousel, which was first a featured attraction at Belle Isle Park in Detroit. But following the stock market crash in 29, Belle Isle falls into bankruptcy and its chosen uh, rights get sold off to satisfy creditors. So this is how the Liberty Carousel winds up in Olympic Park in Irvington, New Jersey. Carousel, which had 90 horses in its original configuration, then stays in operation at that park for the next 35 years until finally the park closes in 65. So with this window of time, Walt Disney Productions is gearing up for Project Florida, and they are, in fact, looking for ways to save money and sure. they'd keep the cost down of building the East Coast Disneyland. And so, you know, Magic Kingdom all obviously needs a carousel. So why reinvent the wheel here? You know, don't build new, buy old. But given the number of guests who are projected to want to visit Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom annually, theme parks carousels got to be a big one. Sure. So... Disney's reps scour the country. They eventually find the Liberty Carousel in the now closed Olympic Park. They make a cash offer to the owners in Irvington, and they're happy to part ways. You know, just here, sure, take the 50-year-old ride. But it's not like you can just take this old carousel and ship it down to Florida to be in you know, for installation. It's first got to be refurbished and brought up to Disney quality. So the company first dismantles the attraction on site in Irvington. And then after every piece is created up, they ship the Liberty Carousel off to our Arrow Development in Northern California. They're the okay. folks who built the original Dark Rides for Disneyland, Snow White Scary Adventure, Mr. Toad, and the like. So they uncreate all of these, these wooden horses, which, by the way, this is old school craftsmanship, Len. There are no screws. Everything is held together with wedges and wooden pegs. Yeah. 
And so everything, every one of these horses has to be sanded down and repainted. And now every one of the horses has to be white. So guests won't be fighting over, you know, they're a knight, they're a princess, they want to ride a white horse. And then also Disney wants to make every single one of the horses on this carousel a jumper because previously- Moving up and down. There we go. Yeah. Uh, Because previously two thirds of the horses on the, the thing were stationary, feet on the ground. So that forces Disney to reconfigure the Liberty Carousel's original setup, which will allow for the the actual mechanics that power the up-and-down movement. Liberty Carousel has to go from being a 90-horse carousel to an 80-horse carousel. Never mind about the band organ in the center of this thing, which was originally imported from Italy. Likewise, the center and the canopy that have to be built and painted so they fit in the Fantasyland setup. All told, given the amount of money the Imagineers spent to turning this 50-year-old attraction into Cinderella's Golden Carousel, I was told by Mark Davis himself that Imagineering could have bought two completely new custom-built carousels for that theme park for the same amount of money that Disney spent on refurbishing the Liberty Carousel. It it sounds like every home renovation project ever, Jim. (laughs) Yes, yes. You get halfway through it and you're like, you know, we should have just built a new house. The original lead horse from the Liberty Carousel is still on Prince Charming's Regal Carousel. Easy to identify, your former lead horse is the one with the eagle and the shield toward the front. And he's got a Native American on his rear flank. Really? Yep, still there today. So the tradition of spending too much time and money at attractions that already exist continues to this day. At Walt Disney Imagineering. I just and I just want to lay these stats out here, Lynn. Okay. Okay. The Tron Light Cycle Run. <laughs> the the attraction that uh, WW Magic said uh, celebrates its fifth year of construction this year. <laughs> Go ahead. Original opened at Shanghai Park, June 16, 2016. July 15, 2017, at that year's D23 Expo, it is announced that the Magic Kingdom will be getting a clone of this Disneyland attraction. And mm-hmm. it's now been 1,511 days since that project was announced. And the Walt Disney World version uh, has not opened. To put that in perspective, Len, the first ground p- clearing for Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, the 2,500-acre parcel that makes up the Magic Kingdom theme park, the two original monorail hotels, the Contemporary and the Polynesian, Fort Wilderness Campground, Bay Lake, and Seven Seas Lagoon, plus the Magic Kingdom parking lot. All right. So the, the original hotels, the original the original mm-hmm. theme park, the parking, yep. the infrastructure, all of it. Okay. Land clearing for that begins on May 30th, 1967. Okay. okay. From the first grand clearing at Walt Disney World, and again in May of 67, to the very first guests pushing their way through the turnstiles on October 1st, 1971, 1,582 days. So 71 days less than, uh, 71 days more right now than it's taken to get Tron to this point. Earlier in the show, you and I were talking about the fact that it's looking more and more likely due to kind of the way Disney parks keeps its books and, you know, that, that likes to debut new things for fiscal 2022. We are more than a year away now from yeah, this from attraction. Of, yeah, I guarantee you that that a, a year from today, a year from, uh, you know, one of the show goes live September 20th, both Guardians and Tron will not be open. Yeah, and when you line up the fact that, again, a 2,500-acre project 
$400 million worth of construction in 1971 money got built out of the swamps of Florida. Of and, swamp. there was, yeah. and there was nothing here, Len. I mean, it's taken over five years to build this attraction in a, a theme park that pre-exists. And it's not a question of, well, first we have to carve out the road to get to the work site. Right, you got yeah. a road. You got a major airport. You got all of the stuff that, in theory, that thing should have opened Years ago, and I, don't get me wrong, I understand about the pandemic, and I understand about what that did to Disney's business plans and revenue streams and all that sort of thing. But the fact that we are sitting here talking about this attraction not being able to open to 2022, that's just nuts. Yeah, five years. Five years. That's just nuts. So anyway, next week, we will continue the story of the final frantic days of Walt Disney World construction, especially at the time when Dick Nunes flew out from California just so he could start kicking butt on at the construction site. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including new shows on the history of Disney's Flying Saucer Ride. On next week's show, we're going to continue the story of what Walt Disney World was like in the days leading up to its opening on October 1st. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lenittoringplants.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be demonstrating his wet felt rolling techniques at the Oregon Flock and Fiber Festival on Saturday, October 23rd at the Lynn County Expo Center in beautiful downtown Albany, Oregon. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.